0: As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Mark one, two, three is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within Scripture and tradition. Yet, how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we have seriously read the Scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning and ultimately what are these texts written over two thousand years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolos, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the Scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Butzolos, mm-hmm. and once again, for those of you at home, I'm happy to have you all with me. And for those of you that have only had a two-minute break, welcome back. I'm so sorry that you have to sit here through another intro. So what we were recently talking about was... This recap that Peter gave in defense of his actions while he was in Cornelius's house. And then we saw the narrative of Barnabas and Saul in Antioch, where the Christians first received this title. And now what we're going to see is another shift in narrative. We're going to see another round of persecutions taking place within the church beginning with the martyrdom of St. James and the imprisonment of St. Peter. So with that out of the way, let's begin the 12th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the day of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squadrons of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So what we see here is that Herod, the Tetrarch, the king of that day, who we've seen before uh, at the passion of Christ is it's this Herod who Jesus was sent to by Pontius Pilate. Well, what do we see? Well, we see that this king, Herod, lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. And then we're told in this violence, he kills James, the brother of John. And if we remember, James was one of the inner circle. So James was one of the three. Peter, James, and John, who were with Christ at the Transfiguration. And they were with Christ when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Yet now, what do we see? We see this James is one of the first apostles to be martyred. And this chapter here is going to mark a shift in the church. Because the order of apostle is going to begin to die out. And rather, what we're going to see is that the apostles are going to be replaced with the bishops which were installed by them. Because the apostles, as they're being sent out into the world, what are they continuing to do? Well, they're continuing to preach the gospel, this first-hand account which they have had, and as they go from place to place, they're installing bishops, and the bishops are the ones who end up keeping order within that community. So... The role of the apostle isn't the same as the role of the bishop. The role of the apostle is to be sent out to preach the gospel to all nations, where the role of the bishop is to hold the example given to them of this apostolic reality. And that's what we call apostolic succession within our church. It's not that the bishops themselves are apostles, because again, the apostles were a specific order that held a specific role within the church at a point in time. And it was their role to make the gospel known to all nations. And as we've seen within the Acts narrative, what's happened? Well, the gospel has gone as far as Ethiopia. So the gospel is continuing to spread to all nations. The apostles are carrying out this charge. And yet, now what do we see? But we see that one of Christ's inner circle becomes the first martyr of the apostles. And his witness of being killed by the sword will continue to reveal Christ to those who have not known him. And yet, what do we see? Well, we see that when Pilate kills James, he sees that this pleases the Jews. So he proceeds to arrest Peter also with the intent to kill him. But what's happening here? Well, we see that this was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And if we remember when Jesus was killed, it was at the same time. It was during the Passover. So what is happening here symbolically? Well, we're seeing a callback within the narrative to the Passion of Christ and the salvation which is offered through Christ's saving Passion. So even though James is killed with the sword, well, what are we told? Well, we're told... That James receives true life in Christ and we also see that this connection to the Passover this the day of unleavened bread shows us something else Because in the same way that James has now entered into death and ultimately into eternal life in Christ well what do we see what well, we're gonna see that death is going to pass over Peter And the reason for this is going to be because God still has work for him to do. And so we hear that Peter sees and he's delivered to four squadrons of soldiers who guard him. And the intent of Pilate is that after the Passover, because it's not right to kill during the Passover, they're going to bring him out to the people for some form of trial. And so Peter is kept in prison. But then we're told that the church makes earnest prayer to God on his behalf. And it's in this earnest prayer that we see why God is going to spare Peter. It's not because the church has now convinced God that he needs to change his mind and intercede on Peter's behalf. Rather, what we see within the earnest prayer is that the will of God ultimately is being manifest through his church. In the same way that when we saw the earnest prayer on behalf of Tabitha a few chapters ago, the will of God was made manifest when Peter rose her from the dead through the power of Christ and the Spirit. So it's important to identify this here: that the church is making earnest prayer to God on Peter's behalf, even though Peter is in such dire strengths. And we need to remember exactly how Peter is being imprisoned here because it's through this extreme example that we're going to see where Pilate is exercising his authority, or at least his perceived authority and his will that will ultimately see the true glory of God in what's about to transpire. So moving on to verse six, the very night when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell, and struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your mantle around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel And rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many others gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a maid named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and told that Peter was standing in the gate. Then they said to her, You are mad, but she insisted that it was so. They said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and they, when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell this to James and to the brethren. Then he departed and went to another place. So remember, we heard that Peter was now being imprisoned with these four squadrons of soldiers by Herod. Well, now we're told that the very night before Herod was going to take him out to bring him to be charged by the people, Peter's sleeping chained to two guards and we hear that there are two sentries by the doors and so the prison is locked tight peter is pretty much out of luck in this description is not only is the outside of the prison locked with guards on the outside but peter is physically chained to two guards on either side of him and yet what are we told Well, we're told, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. And the description of the light shining in the cell is to tell us, again, that this is truly an angel of light, an angel of the Lord, and not some phantom, and not some demon. And what are we told? Well, we're told that the angel struck Peter on the side, and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. So, Peter is violently shaken awake. And yet... What are we told? Well we're told that when the chains fall off of his hands, the angel says to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals." So the chains fall off and yet we're told that the two soldiers who are chained to him don't perceive this. They don't see the light. They don't notice that the chains have fallen off of Peter. And now Peter is being told by this angel, get up quickly, dress yourself and put on your sandals and wrap your mantle around you and follow me. Peter does everything that the angel is telling him, yet the description of what's happening seems very strange. Because again, this seems like a very supernatural example of what's happening, where within the gospel (laughs) and Acts narrative up until this point, we haven't seen such displays. So we need to begin to ask ourselves the question of, well, why is God revealing himself to Peter in this way. And so, Peter follows him, that is the angel. And what we're told is that even Peter thinks this is strange. Again, we saw two chapters ago that Peter entered into a euphoric state where he saw this vision. And what's he assuming here? Well, he's assuming that he's having another example of one of these visions. And so, Instead of questioning the angel, as Peter questioned the voice during the vision he had of the unclean animals, what does he do? Well, he willingly follows. He willingly goes with the will of the Lord. And yet he's questioning because he doesn't know whether or not this is real. And yet, even though he has this questioning in his heart, well, what's he doing? Well, he's going along with what's happening. And then we're told that as the angel leads him to the door, it opens. And we're told that he's passing by the guards and he's being shielded by the angel from them. And this miracle continues because the angel brings him out into the streets. And it's even in the streets that Peter is not noticed. And yet, it's not until the angel leaves him that Peter comes to himself, as we hear, and realizes, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hands of Herod, and from all the Jewish people who were expecting. Now, within the next section, we get the reason for this liberation. Because we hear in verse 12, when Peter realizes this, what's the first thing he does? Well, he's told, we're told rather, that he goes to the house of a Mary, who's the mother of of someone named John Mark. So, what do we see in the description of Peter going to the home of a woman? Well, we're told that this Mary is probably a widow, and she's probably a widow of good financial means because, again, to own a home was an anomaly within the first century world. So after her husband died, well, her husband leaves her this house. And so the house is identified as being Mary's house. But what is more significant, at least from our perspective, is the name of her son. Because her son, his first name is John. But we hear that he has another name. And that name is Mark. So again, this John Mark has a double name in the same way that Simon Peter has a double name but it's from his name mark who we identify who this individual is because this john mark is the same mark the evangelist within our tradition who wrote the gospel according mm-hmm. to saint mark and will soon be traveling with saul and ultimately who will be the scribe rather of peter because again within our tradition we believe that mark is writing down the account of St. Peter while Peter is in Rome. And so here we see the first meeting of Peter and Mark in his mother's home. And so we're told that within Mary's home, gathered together were the brethren praying. So they're continuing to pray for intercession on Peter's behalf, even though Peter is in such dire straits. And so Peter goes to the house and we hear a rather comical description of what happens because he knocks at the door and the maid comes and her name is Rhoda. And when she answers, she recognizes Peter's voice and she's so happy and so filled with joy that she leaves Peter outside knocking at the door and goes and tells everyone that she heard Peter rather than opening the door for him. And so What happens? Well, immediately, everyone who's in there praying thinks that she's mad, because how could Peter be knocking at the door? Again, we heard this description of how he was in prison. There's no way that Peter's getting out of prison from that description. Not only does he have these multiple layers of guards surrounding him, but he's physically chained to to guards at this point. And yet, What's happening? Well, Peter has been liberated and he's now knocking at the door, showing that the continual prayer of the Christians in this home has been answered. And yet, how do the people who are in this house praying respond to this? Well, immediately they think, all right, this lady's crazy because she's saying to us, all right, Peter's outside, even though we know that he's in prison and there's no way he's getting out. And she continues to be persistent. She continues to tell them, no, Peter is there. I've recognized his voice. And they end up saying, well, it's his angel. And it's important to identify what is meant here, because oftentimes I've heard this passage being misinterpreted as meaning, well, they think Peter died and his spirit is now presenting itself at the door. Rather, what we see in the description of Peter's angel is a belief that the Jews had, and that we have as well, that is the guardian, the angel of Peter, the angel with which each of us has charge, who is there to intercede on our behalf. They believe that it is his angel, his guardian angel, who has now come to the door. And yet, what do we hear? Well, Peter's still there knocking. He's still waiting for someone to just open the door for him. And so they finally come, and they open the door, and when they see him, everyone's amazed. Because again, remember, Peter was in this dire strait where it didn't seem like there was any getting out. And yet here he is, now right at the door, and the people see that their prayer was heard. And yet, rather than continuing to let them be in amazement as to what happened, he silences them. And it describes to them exactly what had happened, how the angel of the Lord brought him out of prison. And then we hear Peter tell them to tell James and the brethren what had taken place. This James who is identified here is the first bishop of Jerusalem. James, known as the brother of the Lord, so one of Joseph's other children he had from a prior marriage. And what we see here is, again, another articulation of the end of the Apostolic Age and a shift into a new age of the church. A bishop is now in charge of the church within Jerusalem. And so rather than Peter saying, oh, look at me and the wonderful things that God has done for me, venerate me. He says to the people, go and tell James what happened so that the broader church may be aware of exactly what's happening. And so that way, Peter puts in the court of James this discernment process. So it's not enough for those who see Peter to discern whether or not what has happened is true. Rather, Peter tells them immediately to go to the bishop. In the same way that whenever we experience a miracle within our church today, it's not for us to go around and declare that, oh, what has happened is a miracle. Say we see a relic that begins screaming murder, as is something that happens commonly with our church. Well, we're not to go and look at that miracle and say, look, everyone, it's a miracle and cause this massive stir. Rather, if we believe that something miraculous is actually happening, well, you report that to the hierarchy. And the hierarchy then is the one who declares what it is that's happening. And the reason for this is because who knows what could be happening? You never know with these things. Maybe it could just be some form of condensation that you see. And first of all, we look at it and then we jump to the conclusion of saying, oh, look at this miraculous event. And then rather than acknowledging it as a miracle, which is ultimately pointing us to God, we turn it into an idol. Because that's also the temptation that we have. Because when we see miraculous things happening, well, the temptation is the jump to, well, this is God. Yet, what happens with miracles, as we see with the liberation of Peter? Well, miracles are God's way of revealing to us himself and his mercy. And within this context of Acts, well, what have we seen? Well, we've seen that Peter is liberated in this miraculous way, not so that way everyone can say, well, every single time that we're in prison, then God's going to come and intercede in this way. We know that's not the case because James, one of the apostles, one of the closest apostles to Christ, along with Peter, is now dead. He was martyred, and now he's asleep in the Lord. Yet, Peter... Is liberated. Herod exercises his authority over both of these men. But what do we see in the liberation of Peter and the connection to the Passover, which we're in the middle of? Well, we see that the authority of Herod is no authority at all. We see that even though Herod believes himself to be strong and be able to kill and imprison the apostles, ultimately, God is the one with true authority. So even though Peter has been locked away in such a dramatic way, well, what do we see? God liberates him to show Herod that even though you think yourself to be someone great, you are nothing in comparison to me. Because all of the greatness which has been given to you is a gift from me, from God. And this is a reminder to us Because we need to remember that everything that's given to us is also a gift from God. All of our talents, all of our possessions, everything that we have is not ours, even though we refer to it as mine. Ultimately, we can't create anything. Ultimately, we can't even breathe life into ourselves. God is the one who's continuing to give us these gifts. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, as the church in Antioch has been called, well, what are we called to do? Well, We're called to offer these gifts, each of us according to our ability and according to our means, to the glory of God, not only in a monetary sense, but with the whole of our life. Because we have many more gifts to offer than just those of our physical wealth. And so we hear that Peter departs and goes to another place because he's still in danger. Herod is obviously going to be in search of him the next day when he finds out that he's left the prison somehow. And yet, what do we see? Well, we see that even though James, the brother of John, was martyred, he has true life in the Lord. And now, even though Peter had been in prison, so that way Herod could then have his way with him and kill him the next day, The Lord has now liberated him because he has more work to do. He has to continue to preach the gospel. And so we hear that this narrative comes to a close. And yet we're going to pick up again with Herod in the next section to hammer home the point that is being made within this whole chapter. And the point is that the greatness of God pales the perceived greatness of the kings of this age a motif we've talked about over and over again within St. Luke's narrative. So moving on to verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small stir among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and could not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and remained there. Now Herod was angry with the people. Of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him in body. And having persuaded Blessedus, the king's chamberman, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an opportune day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and made an oration to them. And the people shouted, The voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord smote him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had finished their mission, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we hear that the next day comes, and Herod is in search of Peter, who he imprisoned. And the soldiers are freaking out because Peter is gone. They've been watching all night, and yet Peter is not where he was. And when Herod is seeking for Peter, the fear of these guards is overcoming them. And the reason why they're so afraid is because they know they were given this charge. And Herod is a harsh king. He's a harsh ruler and he is going to exercise his authority in this harsh manner. And so when he calls the centuries to him and orders that they tell him exactly what happened to Peter, well, they're speechless. And rather than receiving their speechlessness and glorifying God because of the miraculous things that had happened, well, what does he do? Well, Herod becomes angry, and he has them put to death. And then we're told that after he kills the centuries who were in charge of watching over Peter, who had let him go, perceivably, he goes down from Judea to Caesarea to remain there. So we see that Herod leaves Judea. So he leaves Jerusalem where he was, and he goes to Caesarea where we were when we met Cornelius. And While he's in Caesarea, we hear that Herod continues to be angry, and now his anger is directed towards the people of Tyre and Sodom. We're not told exactly why he's angry at the people of Tyre and Sodom, but what we're told is that they come to him as one, and they persuade one of his attendants, his chambermen, to let them in so that way they can ask of peace, because their country depends on Herod for food. So what do we see here? We see that Herod is a man of authority. He's a king. And as a king, he has people under him who are dependent on him for their basic sustenance. And so even though Herod is at odds with these people, what do we hear? We hear that they come to him as one and ask for him to intercede on their behalf. And what we're told again through the description of Herod is that he's a harsh man. He's neglecting all of the opportunities which God is continuing to give to him to repent. God gave him an opportunity to repent when he did this miracle of freeing Peter. And yet, what does Herod do? Well, he hardens his heart and he turns around and he kills the sentries who are in charge of watching over Peter. Here we see God again is offering Herod an opportunity to soften his heart. And yet, we're told that he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sodden, so he's showing wrath towards them in spite of their dependence on him and his country for food. And then we're told that on an appointed day, Herod puts on his finest robes, and he takes his seat on his throne, and he makes an oration to them. So he begins to speak to the people. And the people cry out, The voice of a God and not a man. This is the final straw. Because now Herod is holding himself up as being greater than God. God has continued to give him opportunity after opportunity to repent, to realize that he is the one who is the source of true glory. And yet what do we hear here? We hear that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. So the word smote, which is used here, is in Greek, the same word that was used to describe the angel of the Lord striking Peter to wake him. So in the same way that we see Peter shaken awake by the striking of the angel, we see that the striking of the angel leads to Herod's downfall because he did not give glory to God. Rather, he glorified himself. And for this reason, we're told that he dies from being eaten by worms. And yet, the decay that's described through the worms eating Herod isn't something that happens magically now that he's profaned God. Rather, the decay of Herod's life has been transpiring throughout the entirety of it. As we saw in these three examples given here, Herod has been given numerous occasions to repent, to give glory to God for the mighty gifts that have been entrusted to him. And yet time and time again, he's exercised his authority harshly, neglecting the gifts which are being offered to him, leading ultimately to his downfall, leading ultimately to him being consumed by the things of this age, by the worms that eat at the flesh. And so the death of Herod, symbolically represents the death which he lived throughout his whole life. The death of his isolation from God, which continually transpired. Because as Herod, time and time again, rejected the will of God for his life, what do we see now? That ultimately leads to his downfall. Mm -hmm. But the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to say, isn't the fact that Herod has been refusing to repent. Rather, It's the fact that Herod holds himself up to be greater than God, even though God is the one who has given him this authority, even though God is the one who has continually called him to serve those who are under him. These realities have been neglected time and time again by Herod. And this is a very similar narrative to the narratives of kings that we hear within the Old Testament. And again, the point which is made throughout this whole chapter is that even though the kings of this age believe themselves to be great, in comparison to God, they have no greatness. Because God is the the source of all authority which is granted to us. And yet, what is the misunderstanding that Herod has? Well, the misunderstanding is that his greatness is of his own accord, that the greatness which he exudes is something of his own making. When really everything that's been entrusted to them is a gift given by God. And what do we hear after Herod dies? Well, the death of Herod and the persecution which he brings comes to an end. And the word of God continues to grow and multiply. So even though we see this vast martyrdom continuing, well, what do we see? Well, the reaction to martyrdom within the early church, as we see in Acts, is the continued growth exponentially of the church. And we're told in this final clause that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had finished their mission. So the mission in Antioch, which they carried out for over a year, has now come to an end. There's now this newfound peace brought to the church by God. And it's in this peace That Barnabas and Saul are now able to come to Jerusalem, where they bring to them John, Mark, who will continue with them in their broader ministry to the Gentiles. So what we can ascertain from this entire chapter is that the will of God is continually shining forth. And through the will of God, we see that the kings of this age, even though they hold themselves to have authority, have no real authority. And this should be a humbling reminder to each and every one of us that when we perceive ourselves to be someone great, we need to remember where that greatness is actually rooted because the greatness of our actions isn't something that is our own. It's not something that's of our own making that we're supposed to take pride in and hold up and show the other people and say, look at this, look at this gift that has been given to me. This is mine. Rather, we're to use the gifts that are given to us to give witness through our actions, to humbly approach others, presenting these gifts, ultimately to reveal Christ to them. Because this is what we see in the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. We see that they are continuing to give of the talents which have been entrusted to them. And what that leads to is the church multiplying. And what that ultimately leads to is their life in Christ. In the same way that we see James offer up his life as a martyr, what does that do? Well, that allows for him to receive the crowns of incorruption in life, a life in Christ. And ultimately, what do we see with Peter through the martyrdom of his life? even though his life has not been taken? Well, through the witness which he's giving, through all of his struggles, more and more people receive the gospel, and they receive it gladly. So it's through the witness of our actions, as we continue to offer up everything that's been entrusted to us by Christ, that we lead others to his saving life, towards his saving gospel, rather than through using the gifts that are given to us the Lord over others. Because Herod believed himself to be someone great. He believed himself to have the power over life and death as we see him take the life of James and spare for a moment the life of Peter until an opportune time to kill him. And yet, ultimately, when we see Herod exalt himself above God, what do we see? We see that God is the only true one who has this great authority. Because when God sees that Herod cannot be saved, he takes him at the time that he wills. He takes him at the time when Herod exalts himself the most, showing us that even though Herod believed himself to have great authority, the authority of God is even greater. So as we wrap up this chapter, And as we meditate upon how we can apply this text to our life, we need to remember that the authority with which we show through whatever has been entrusted to us, whether we have authority in our jobs over others or whether we have authority over others within our social groups, we need to remember that this authority, along with All of the things that have been given to us, our talents, our money, our possessions, is a gift given to us by God. And if everything that has been given to us is a gift, as I'll stress over and over and over again, because it's so crucial for our faith. If everything that is given to us is a gift given to us by God, well, then we are called to use those gifts to his glory. Because in his giving them to us, he is glorifying us. And through his entering into our shared humanity, into our creation, what do we see? He's lifting us up. He's giving us the strength to use the things that are given to us to his glory. So that way we, through our example, may lead others to him. So as we prepare to celebrate Nativity of our Lord and Savior. We need to keep in mind just what it is that we're celebrating, because through celebrating the Nativity of our Lord, we're not just celebrating Jesus's birthday. Rather, we're celebrating the beginning of salvation. We're celebrating the incarnation, when God became man and dwelt among us, because it's through the Nativity. That we see Christ enter into our shared humanity. And as we've mentioned multiple times before, it's through the Nativity, through the Incarnation, that Christ is actively transfiguring the whole of creation. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. For those of you who are listening to the recording, this Coming week is Christmas, so we're going to take a little time off, so there won't be a recording next Friday. However, we'll be picking up the following week. So I pray for those of you listening at home and those of you sitting with me that you and your families have a Merry Christmas. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study Make His Path Straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So, in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So, if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures. I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30am and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45am. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox Church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight.